Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February 12, 2014, and this is episode 1300 of the Survival Podcast. It's kind of an interesting number. I just like numbers. I guess that's part of who I am. And uh, round numbers, for some reason, appeal to me. 1,300 is a lot of episodes to have behind us. We're in our sixth year of production of the Survival Podcast. I'm glad to have you with me. If you're a new listener, uh, we talk about some pretty advanced topics. At times, we talk about things that are uh, mundane, like some of the stuff today you might consider mundane because it's legal legal prepping is what we're going to talk about today, how not to be exposed to legal dangers. Uh, And I have a special intro today, uh, after I get done with the main introduction segment, about the permit ethos farm we're trying to build and the legislative problems we're running into with that and how to be creative and outsmart the bastards at their own game. Uh, so that's what today is. But we talk about everything from homesteading uh, to uh, to basic prepping to the end of the world as we know it. And a lot more time is spent on the mundane disasters like the ice storm currently rocking the southeastern United States, for one example. Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is Chef Keith Snow, expert council member extraordinaire and owner of the website HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith has an amazing podcast where he'll help you learn to make cooking a life skill. And if you don't think cooking is a survival skill... I don't think you've ever lived on MREs for six months like I did at one time in my life. You learn that cooking is really important when you have to deal with mundane things, like a lot of the stuff we store for long-term storage. And, hey, we talk about you know surviving and thriving here on the Survival Podcast, and the better quality food that you're eating and, and things like that have a lot to do with your day-to-day happiness as well and your overall preparedness. Check Chef Keith's website out, harvesteating.com. He has amazing, amazing seasonings uh, available there and sauces and other really cool stuff. I'll tell you what, I really love the steak seasoning that he has, the ch- grilled chicken seasoning, and the low and slow barbecue. I also like northern Italian. It's something I use quite a bit as well. Check out everything at harvesteating.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals, herbs of a different kind. Uh, this week we, we did some work on one of the Hoogle mounds and, uh, after a day of shoveling and I did some other things too, uh, did some seeding in the, uh, West Pasture and some stuff like that. That was pretty sore. Instead of reaching for Tylenol or Advil or Motrin or any of that other crap, uh, I took some, uh, Western Botanicals anti-inflammatory, which main ingredient in that is turmeric. It's a great natural anti-inflammatory. It's not going to damage my kidneys and screw things up, and it made me feel better. That's just one example of the great products that are available at Western Botanicals. I'll put it to you this way. If it's herbal and legal, they have it. And if you're not sure what you need, give them a call, and they'll do what they can to help you figure out what's best for you. They're real people that really care about you. Harvest, uh, sorry, WesternBotanicals.com. They're also a huge supporter of the Member Support Brigade. They have a $50 membership that's called their Premium Membership. You get 25% off everything that you buy, and then it's $25 a year after that. They give you the first year for free if you're a member of my support brigade. That pays your entire first year of MSB. Uh, Chef Keith Snow and Harvest Eating also has a great discount for you. On the MSB discounts, my MSB discounter of the day, the company that actually does a discount for you, but it's not an official sponsor, just a supporting vendor of the MSB, is Mother Earth Products. If you like to use dehydrated vegetables and fruits and freeze-dried fruits in your preps, and I do, 
Uh, I cook with them all the time, and they are a great long-term store of nutrition. Mother Earth Products is a great place. Uh, I used to buy from Harmony House until I found better pricing and selection at Mother Earth Products in larger quantities. And if you're an MSB member, you get 12% off all purchases at Mother Earth Products. That one discount, if you buy a lot like I do every year, may pay for most of, if not all, of your MSB. On that note, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And you help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, you do qualify for a discount. And uh, the way you get that discount, send me an email with service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing and uh, or what you did if you're prior service. I also give that discount to all first responders like uh, paramedics, firefighters, and uh, uh, EMTs. So if you are any of those things, you qualify for a discount. If you email me before, not after you join, again, service discount in the subject line and uh, send that to jack at the survival podcast. Dot com. That is my real email. I read all my email. I do not answer it all, but if you want to get in touch with me, that is the best way to do so. It will work far better than pinging me on LinkedIn or uh, Facebook or any of that stuff. I do occasionally mess around with that, but really email is where I live my life when I'm still working uh, anyway and not podcasting, so email is the way. Okay, with that wrapped up, um, let's get into our history segment today. It is episode 1300, so the year is 1300. Uh, everybody died at like 40 uh, or like 15 or something like that in the Middle Ages, right? No. Alex Shrugged, who does a great job over at TSP Wiki, has our history segment for us today. He has three. I'm going to tell you what the other two are real quick. I'm just not going to go into them. I kind of encourage you to get over to tspwiki.com and check them out for yourself. The Mongols are weapons of mass destruction. This is a very interesting one, but that's not the one I'm going to read. And Braveheart and the Last Night. Those are the other two available at tspwiki.com under the year 1300. The one I'm going to read to you is Life Expectancy is now 64. Expect a steep decline. Alex says, generally good crops have doubled the population of England to nearly 6 million souls in the last century. Europe populations have tripled. The life expectancy for the period of growth has been 64 years old. But this will be as large as the population will get for several centuries to come. The Black Plague will sweep across Europe and England like a wildfire and kill 23% of the world population. Life expectancy will drop to 45 years old in the 1300s, but for now, life is good. My take by Alex Shrugged. Alex says, although it is possible to live to a ripe old age in the Middle Ages, it barely makes sense to compare life expectancy numbers from then to now because of higher infant mortality rates. If Grandpa lived to be 80 years old, but baby Timmy lived to be one month old, the average life expectancy between the two is 40 years old. Ding, 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 Alex, you are correct. That is the lie that we've been sold. It is better to compare the life expectancy from 12 years on and avoid infant mortality from skewering the results. It is also better to track male and female lifespan separately because during the Middle Ages, women often died in childbirth while men died in battle and are not comparable risks to each other. I agree. And I have said for many, many, many years, and, and to much to the dismay and gnashing of teeth by many people, that this belief that everybody died at like 30 in the past is complete crap, and medical science has done wonderful things, but they're taking way more credit than they deserve for what they have done. Um, the main reason that people live longer today is not medicine. What it actually is is cleaner conditions, better housing, and more food. Those are Those get of increasing the life expectancy 
from right now, I think the average life expectancy of males in the United States of America is 72. By increasing life expectancy from 64 to 72, at best, medical science gets half of that credit. Half. No more. And that's the truth. And there are a lot of people that live longer today because of medicine, but I think there's an equal number of people probably killed by it. Um, if you want to be shocked, look up the actual number of people killed every year through the proper use of prescribed medications. This means they were prescribed the medicine, they took it as prescribed, and it was properly prescribed. It wasn't an accident. The pharmacist didn't put the wrong pills in the bottle, what have you. It will blow you away. All right, with that wrapped up, let's get into uh, the main part of the show. And I am going to do about a 15-minute mini-segment here before I bring on Lisa Haywood of Haywood Law to talk to you guys about prepping from a legal standpoint. Um, I, I try not to turn the Survival Podcast into a permaethos infomercial, but this is too good not to share from how bad it is to how we can turn it around. Permaethos started out as an idea. I did an episode on it a while ago. It was going to be a community. We're going to go find a couple hundred acres, uh, lease off one-acre parcels to about, oh, I don't know, 120, 140 people, keep the balance of it as community property. People have their own land to work. They have a community property. We have a farm. We sell educational programs. We sell food. Uh, we sell livestock. We sell all type. We're going to make it into this little, basically like a community town. We ran into so many obstacles with anything approaching a local government that would get in the way of doing this somewhere where people would actually want to come. Um, we decided to take another route. And this new route works because it plays on the strengths of doing what we can do now. And that is to raise about a half a million dollars and go out and buy a farm. 40 to 80 acres with a house on it. Put a farm steward in, head farmer, couple tenant farmers, bring in woofers, build the farm first over a couple years, transition the farm into a micro-community, maybe put 8 to 10 other people on it, and then take our, our tenant farmers. We now know what they're doing and have become experts at this and move them to two new farms and do it again. And a year later, have two tenant farms under each of them, do it again, and have it, and just keep doing that, and use it as a track record and eventually go back to the community model. So this is great. So the Jobs Act of 2012 legalized something that should be legal, that most people don't know is illegal in this country. It's called private fundraising, which means I can, you can be in a business with me, but you have to, like, come to me. I can't, like, tell you, hey, I have this great opportunity. You can invest money with me. That is considered illegal. That is dangerous. Okay, so in 2012, the Jobs Act made it no longer illegal with certain restrictions. I can only, so I have about 80 people so far that have stepped up and said, after I released a form yesterday and an audio the day before about the ethos farm, I want to invest $500 a share. Some people want to buy one. Some people want to buy 20. Under this new legislation, I can only actually take 35 investors that are not accredited investors as a startup. 35. Any more than that, and I'm sunk. That is not enough to do the deal. The other way to do it is to sell memberships. Take more of a crowdfunding approach the way that you do with um, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and say, well, we have our investors. They put the core seed investment in, and then we'll sell memberships. And those memberships, we can give you a free share of stock with every membership. There's nothing that prevents this at all. With all the rights and ownership responsibilities of a share of stock, because we've given it to you. It's because a membership is going to get you discounts, visitation rights, and uh, access to, because we have some real cool stuff coming. I'm not going to tell you what yet. But you want to talk about having the ability to document stuff? 
I got somebody that stepped up today that will take world-class video and live on site while he does it. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And we can make access to that available to members and anybody else has to pay for it. And this is just awesome and it's all going great except I need a half a million dollars and there's no way I can fundraise a half a million dollars with only 35 people and a balance of accredited investors. Let me tell you what an accreditor, accredited investor is to tell you how big a hurdle this is. And this is in the United States only, and this was as amended by the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. This is for your protection. A bank insurance company, registered investment company, business development company, or a small business investment company. So the investment companies and banks are not affected at all. Um, an employee benefit plan within the meaning of the employee retirement, just don't worry about it. It doesn't apply to you. A charitable organization, corporation, or partnership with assets exceeding $5 million. Again, another organization with more than $5 million in assets. Probably not you. A directive, ex a director, executive officer, or general partner for the company selling the securities. Okay? So if you are an executive officer or general partner or director in PermaEthos, then we can sell to you even if you if you don't have money, basically, because now you're a director and you have a say in the business. This is a loophole we may or may not need to exploit. Five, a business in which all the equity owners are accredited investors. So if I have a business, even though it's not big enough, but everybody that is in that business and we are all individually accredited investors, you get it? Okay, a natural person... <laughs> That's you, by the way. We're finally talking about you. A natural person who has an individual net worth or joint net worth with a person's spouse that exceeds $1 million at the time of the purchase or has assets under management of $1 million or above, excluding the value of their primary residence. So if you or you and your wife are worth over $1 million, not including the home you live in, You are an accredited investor. There may be some people that want to do this in our audience that qualify as an accredited investor that way. I hope so. Okay, A natural person, that's again you, with income exceeding $200,000 in each of the most recent years or joint income with a spouse exceeding $300,000 for those years and a reasonable expectation of the same income level in the current year. If you make $200,000 and have for two years, or if you and your spouse together made $300,000 for the last two years, and neither of you has lost your job or you still have your business, and you're expecting to earn that much, and I believe that is taxable income. That is, that is your AGI, or adjusted gross income. After tax deductions and all, I do not qualify myself as an accredited investor. I do not have income exceeding $200,000, nor does my wife and I combined have income exceeding $300,000. Um, But that's probably, I don't know. I need to know what that is. And if somebody can tell me if it's AGI or if it's gross income before deduction. So in, in your deductions, you have two types of deductions on a tax return as an individual. One is if you are a sole proprietorship business, you have the direct business expenses. And that gives you one income level. And then you have your individual deductions, uh, your, your deductions that somebody without a business would also have. And I bet you it's it's something to do there. Or if you pay yourself out of your corporation, your paycheck is probably sufficient for this. So if you make more than two hundred grand a year in salary, or your wife and you combined make more than three hundred grand, you are an accredited investor here. 
if you think you're getting written out of this deal, don't, don't. I've got a way around all this crap. A trust with assets in excess of $5 million. So if you have a trust, which you'll hear more about today, set aside, and that trust has more than $5 million, the trust can invest as an accredited investor. So what you can see is that in the guise of protecting you from evil people like me, the government has made working with me on this as an investor very, very difficult to impossible for about 99% of the people in the country. There's your 99 and 1. There's your 1%. Your 1% is not Mark Cuban and Bill Gates. They are the one-tenth of 1%. The 1% are the people that are actually trusted by government to make decisions about their own money to back businesses that they think are worth backing without government protections and oversight and they need to coddle you. So now I'm in a situation where just by testing this yesterday, I think we have close to $200,000 in potential investments. Just one day for a couple hours. People saying, I'll step up and I'll do it. I think getting up to half a million dollars and doing this is totally doable. And now, once again, I have the government saying, can't do that. Now, how can I do it? How can I do it? What I can do is I can sell memberships. And with the memberships, I can give the free um, stock. Fine. Problem. That is income. So if I sell a half a million dollars in memberships, I have a half a million dollars in income. I have nowhere near enough offsetting expenses to really make the most of that money. And now I'm in the neighborhood of having to raise about $650,000 and giving away about $150,000 of your money to the government as income tax for the corporation. That is not a good steward of your money. But just so you understand this completely, the federal government is totally okay with it as long as they get their piece. Here's the difference. If you are an investor, your money is invested and capitalized into the corporation. Because of that, it's not income. It's a corporate asset. And it's not taxed. When it gets used and leveraged and results in a profit... It then is taxed, okay, and tax goes to the government, okay? But the initial investment doesn't get taxed. So what do lawyers say? Lawyers say, well, do a 501c3. And then when they put the money in, it's a donation. And then you don't have to pay any tax at all, and everything's cool, and none of this shit applies. So if I take your money and don't give you any money back, and I give you nothing for your money, I'm allowed to do that. But if I take your money to do the same thing, okay, because I can structure this as a 501 and, and do it exactly the way I want to do it, but if I take your money and say, you might get money back, I can't do that without under investment guidelines, or I have to do a membership thing and then I have to pay income tax on it. So you look at that and you think you're totally screwed. Now let me, before I move on, I want to tell you partly why we have to do this. This has to happen now. I am enraged by what I heard from a well-meaning attorney yesterday. I had an attorney tell me this needed to be a 501, not a corporation in the conventional LLC or INC type, because of the way that I wanted to do business. This wasn't really a lot to do with the investor side of things. Okay, This was, well, you say you want to make a profit, but you want to be open. You want to tell people about your mistakes. You want to share secrets. That, that, that's bad business, and a corporation can't do business that way. A corporation can't put the ideals of the, the movement ahead of the profit. When I read that, I said the F word three times in a row. 
loud, and angry. How effed up are we that we think that way in America today? A company can't put the ideals first. A company absolutely should put the ideals behind what they're doing ahead of profit. They should. That doesn't mean profit is last. It means it's second. Because a mission-oriented company, which is buzzspeak in the modern world, actually means that's what you're doing. People are doing it, but they won't say it because it scares away investors. They won't say it because there's laws that if you're publicly traded, you can't say it. You're not allowed to. And if you have information that could damage the company, you're required not to release it. If you're a publicly traded company, did you know this? That Monsanto, when they were damaging the people of Anniston, Alabama, and failed to release the information about the damage PCBs were doing, and they knew that's what they were doing, when they were prosecuted for it in a civil lawsuit, said, we had an obligation to our shareholders not, and, and, and that actually holds up. So they were found guilty of damages to the people, but there was no penalty for refusing to let the people know they had poisoned them. This is American business today. And it doesn't have to be this way in a private equity-funded company. A private equity-funded company is not required to not divulge things like, hey, we tried this and it didn't work. Or, you know, we uh, because the, it, there's no public trading of, of the stock. All right, so we're not restricted by that. But that just gives you another angle to how messed up things are. So you might think, well, Jack, you're screwed again. You're back to the drawing board again. There's no way to make this work. Oh, contraire, mon frere. I am about to demonstrate for you what happens. I, I grew up with a condition that nobody understood at the time called Asperger's, which is now known as an autism spectrum disorder, which is a disservice to people with it because it lumps you in with people with, with, with autism that need a hell of a lot more help than a person with Asperger's does. Asperger's, it takes you into this kind of manic brilliance mode at times and then kind of a depressed mode at times, and uh, you don't get along with people sometimes because you don't understand you hurt their feelings and all, but basically it's just a part of being a human being. And But you get gifts with it. There's detriments and there's gifts. I might hurt your feelings and not realize I've hurt your feelings because I don't interpret you as being hurt, so I don't know to be empathic towards you. But the other side of that is I can learn and go beyond that, and I have, um, though it still comes out at times. But I get this 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 way of thinking creatively uh, as part of this personality type, which I don't think it's a disorder. I just think it's a personality type. You're about to see me unleash this shit on the federal government of the United States right now in open court and do so effectively and cover all things, dot every I and cross every T. Watch me dissect this problem. Okay, the first thing the federal government has told me is I can only take accredited investors or up to 35 non-accredited investors. So the first thing I need to do is sort out everybody that wants to be an investor that is an accredited investor. They are all in the first round of funding. If you think you're getting written out here as a person who wants to buy one share and does not qualify, don't. I'm going to fix it. I promise you. Watch and be amazed as I prove how stupid this is in the fact that this is what you have to do to get around it. So I take all my accredited investors and I put them into a round of funding. This is the establishment funding of the corporation. It doesn't matter if they want to buy one share or 20. It doesn't matter because they're accredited. Because they're accredited, because they are an accredited investor, I don't care how many of them there are. I want as many of them as I can get for my initial funding round. Then I sort through all the people that want in, And I can take 35 non-accredited investors. I take the 35 biggest non-accredited investors. 
and I try to raise as much fund as I can with my first round of funding. Let's say it's $100,000. I think we can do better, but let's say it's $100,000. I have just reduced the taxable money through selling memberships to $400,000. In one year, that's a hell of a tax bill. It really is. It's a big tax bill. Okay, let's start off by saying we're going to have operational expenses on an annualized basis. And it would be much better that we paid the taxes on that $400,000 over two years rather than one year. Well, what a lot of people don't know is when you create a corporation, you can determine for yourself where your fiscal year ends and begins. Ah, so we set a fiscal end year okay, of our own choosing, maybe June. We open up the first round of funding. Oh, man that fiscal year end and we only sell half of the memberships in that first fiscal year okay this takes us to three hundred thousand dollars we 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 spend as much money as we can as fast as possible by the end of the year now a huge piece of it has to go into the purchase of the land but we can we can dissolve a lot of the other into expenses and i'll talk about some creative way to do expenses then On the next day after the fiscal year ends, we sell the balance of memberships. Okay? That moves their income into the next fiscal year. And that splits it between two fiscal years. And we may have to be strategic and sit down with a CPA and figure out when is the, how much time do we need between the first round of funding and the second round of funding to make this work. But we make it work. And we defer half of the taxes into the next year, okay? We may even say, hey, you know what? Maybe we actually defer some of the membership funding into the third fiscal year, which is only the second operational year. So one way or another, we just mitigate how much money is taxable right now. We might even only raise just enough money to buy the property in the first fiscal year, pay the lot on the tax bill for that, which is going to suck, but then flip around and taking the rest of the memberships after the property is acquired, deferring that into the second operational year. One way or another, we can mitigate that. Then we can get creative. Okay, We can do things like this. Let's say we're going to need a tractor. Smartest thing in the world we can do at that point, Dennis, to start buying our equipment from private sellers. Used equipment, better deal, good enough to do the job. Let's say a tractor is $4,000 that we're going to buy for our, our farm. So we go to the seller and we say, I'd like to make you a deal. You want $4,000 for that tractor, right? Okay, yeah. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay you $3,990 for that tractor. And he's going to probably go, 10 bucks, Sure, take it. Okay, well, wait a minute. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to sign a lease with you. I'm going to lease it for one year for $3,900. Then we're going to have an agreed-upon lease buyout, and I'm going to buy out the lease at 20 bucks. So you're going to get $3,900, you're going to actually get $4,010. But I'm going to write off $3,990 of it as a direct expense versus an asset acquired. So instead of having a depreciation expense over five years on the piece of equipment, I'm going to pull the expense into the first year of operations. Now, what about this membership thing? How does this work out? You know, you want to be an owner and now you're a member. Oh, hold on. So... Membership will have benefits. Now, by the way, all owners will be members. So every person that is an accredited investor or a, 
uh, one of the, the 35 I can allow in as an unaccredited investor. Um, what we'll do with them is we'll say, okay, you guys come into this, this fold, this, this operational fold, and as, as a founding member of the company, you get a membership. So you qualify for all the other membership benefits. Membership benefits would include things like a guaranteed spot as a woofer, uh, visitation rights to the farm with, uh, with an appointment, of course. Uh, opportunities to come do things like, we'll be thinking of other things like work-ins. Work-ins are what we'll do something that'll be like a workshop, but we won't charge for it at all. You bring your own food, kind of a, a potluck work-in where you come and we do a project and everybody just shows up and works and that'll only be open to members for free. Maybe we'll charge a fee for anybody outside the membership, right? So we have something that say, this is what you're buying. Discounts on all our produce, discounts on everything we sell. It's a membership. It's expensive membership, but I can charge as much as I want to for it. Oh, by the way, for every membership you buy, we will give you for free one share of stock in the company with all the rights and privileges that come, go along with that common stock. Hello. Done. Now, this has to be done very, very tightly by a very, very astute tax attorney and CPA to make sure we conform with everything, especially since I'm making the crazy, crazy, crazy move of saying up front, this is what we're doing. But this is the world you live in today. You live in a world today where this is what you have to do to work with people who want to work with you. Is this the best way to do it? I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure. But some version of this. Eventually what we're going to have to do is say this is how much money we can actually capitalize. And this is how much money we have to raise through the selling of memberships. And then mitigate the taxes on the memberships. This means I can't do as much with the money that people put into permaethos as I could if the government wasn't in the way to protect you. Now, can somebody please tell me how you're being protected by the government here? Can someone please tell me how you're being protected by the government here? I, I don't see it. I don't see it at all. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see any way that the government's helping anybody here? Oh, wait. Who are they helping? They're helping all the large corporations that are owned and put together by accredited investors, the 1%. By preventing me from using six years of social capital, six years of dedicating my life to providing the best information I could to you, Six years of demonstrating to you time and time again that you can trust me and levering that, leveraging that social capital into financial capital to do good for the rest of the world and compete with the big corporations on a level playing field. I have to do it on a tilted playing field. Now, the good news is some of these regulations may be removed in the future. The Jobs Act of 2012, which was passed in 2012, has provisions to lighten this stuff even more. But Congress has failed to act on it. And we don't expect it this year. So one way or another, we're doing this. We're going to make this happen. I am going to skin this cat. And I'm going to hang it up for all to see and say, this is what a skinned cat looks like. And now we're going to skin another cat and another cat. And another cat. I will not be held back in getting this done. I will not have any more interference 
from government without meeting it by turning its own apparatus against it. They got in the way of me doing a community. A community that had immediately over 100 people wanting to invest in it and over 200 people wanting to live in it. And by the way, under the current rules with 35 or, or less accredited investors, I could have done it. I could have done it. They got in the way of it. The local governments got in the way of it. The ones that said you need a road to do something this big. And now, turn this apparatus and say, okay, look, we'll do this. We'll, we'll buy a farm that already farms, that's already zoned agricultural. We'll take that farm and we'll, we'll start producing on that farm. We'll do it in a way that no one can get hurt. We'll take no more money from a person that they can afford. We'll ask them where they're getting the money from before we take it. We'll say, look, if you, you know, you know, if you don't have this money, don't put it here. Completely ethically. And they say, well, you can't do that because you might hurt them. I said, well, if I set this up so that they can give me the money and get nothing, it's okay. Yes. You're saying that with a straight face. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Fine. Here you go. This is the methodology. Split the tax burden. Reduce the tax burden by as much as possible. Do it as a membership. Fail to capitalize a lot of the money directly into the company, capitalize as much as we can initially, and move on. Your government helping you. And those of you that still have any faith in your government and think that Democrats or Republicans are on your side, I believe when you look at Dodd-Frank, you'll see an R and a D. This is for your protection. On the note of protection, let's bring on our guest, Lisa Haywood. Before that, I just want to point out, you can get over to permaethos.com, listen to a one-hour presentation on the Permaethos Farm. There will be a link in today's show notes. Anyway, Lisa Haywood of Haywood Law is an awesome gal. She is a prepper and an attorney. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. She's a great gal, and she has a great deal for you guys that we forgot to put in the episode. So I'm just going to tell you about it in advance She has two websites. One is HaywoodLaw.com. That's her legal firm. And if you are in Ohio and in need of legal assistance or advice, especially with estate planning and legal protections, you can get in touch with her because she's licensed to practice in the state of Ohio. That's HaywoodLaw.com. The other website, though, is something everybody can use, and we'll hear more about what's on it while we're here today. But there are planning tools that you can use there to uh, make sure that you cross all your I's and dot all your T's when you're doing your estate planning and legal planning and things like that. Again, the site is called Life Shield 360. Here's the, and she also, you know, she's a lawyer that sells long-term storage food, so here you go. She will do a $5 rebate on any planner and a $10 rebate on bulk food storage buckets of six months, eight months, uh, one year, two year, and three year. Uh, so you get a rebate on either one of those, and again, that site is Life Shield 360. For the details of how to do that, look up today's episode at thesurvivalpodcast.com, episode 1300. And with that, uh, I'd like to bring on the former ambulance chaser, but now good guy attorney, helping people plan for the uh, the mundane disasters that can bankrupt us and avoid them with full legal protections, Lisa Haywood of Haywood Law. And with that, hey, Lisa, welcome to the Survival Podcast. 
And with that, I want to say, hey, Lisa, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, we're trying this round, too. We tried back in December during the great ice storm, and uh, it didn't work. So uh, we'll see what we can do here with round two. Um, the first question I always like to ask somebody that's on the show really is, can you tell us how you got into what you're doing today? You're an attorney, and um, I imagine most eight-year-old little girls aren't running around going, one day I'm going to grow up and be a lawyer. Um, and you, generally, your life takes some kind of a crooked path that leads you there. So just so the audience can kind of connect with who you are, can you talk about how you ended up being an attorney in the first place? Well, if you ask my mom, she says it's because I ran out of majors to attempt, uh, and that was the only one left. However... Um, how I really became a lawyer was I wanted a, a profession in which I could feel strong and independent, independent financially in. And I think that that's always been kind of part of who I am is just a little bit of that independence, that, that libertarian in there. And I wanted to be able to take care of myself. So that's why I kind of chose the, the area of law, but I also wanted to be able to help others not to take care of their problems, but to teach them how to take care of their problems so that it doesn't happen again. And so that's where I've really developed our, my practice. I, I say that there's offensive law and there's defensive law. And uh, a lot of people come to me on the defense because they have a problem that's happened. They want me to fix it. I don't do them any good if I don't teach them how to resolve the problem and make sure it doesn't happen again to them in the future. And that's that, that taking the offense side of things. So. Well, I think that's really important. And I think there's a lot of, you know, we just had a guy on with, with an insurance uh, podcast. I, I, I thought this is perfect that I'm paying yeah. right to this. So. And, and I think legality is another place that people leave themselves exposed because, you know, people come here and, and they want to talk about the zombies and the end of the world as we know it and all. And we do talk about some, some pretty deep, dark scenarios at times, but the whole philosophy that we teach here is along the lines of prepare for the most likely disaster first, and when you get relatively well prepared for that, move on to the next one. And what you find is what I call disaster impact scale, which has nothing to do with the impact on the individual. It has the impact on the number of individuals. So a meteor obviously has a bigger impact scale, no pun intended, uh, and the number of individuals it would harm if a meteor the size of a Mack truck crashed into the earth than, let's say, you being sued. Um, but unless the meteor kills you, if you're just in the aftermath, this, the lawsuit might actually be a bigger problem for you. Mm -hmm. And And so when we look at that, you know, people hear the term estate, and I think that they think of that like being like kind of wealthy family or something like that. But we all have estates. It's just basically everything that we own, everything that we have during our lives, and everything we leave behind. So that's one of the most important things that we can look at protecting. So, you know, are there some basic estate planning techniques and tools that a person should be using? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, I always teach people to – Prepare based on based on your probability, not your possibilities. And um, along the lines of that, the one probability is you're going to die, and you're going to leave people behind to, to deal with your mess. And so, a lot of what you're doing when you're doing estate planning isn't so much leaving a legacy as much as it is. Uh, being courteous to the people you leave behind not to have to clean up the mess that you leave behind. So um, 
I always say that the greatest legacy that you can leave is organization for the other people that are trying to grieve over your loss. The last thing uh, somebody that's grieving needs is me calling up and saying, hey, do you happen to have a shoebox full of life insurance policies? Because we kind of need those. And I want them to be able to do what they need to do and, and go through that grieving process without bothering them. So a lot of what I'm teaching as far as just estate planning goes is just organization. And a lot of people say, oh, I've got everything organized in a filing cabinet. I always teach people grab and go binder. Have you ever tried to get a filing cabinet into the back of your car in an emergency? doesn't work real well. It might make a great YouTube video, though, but uh, I always teach people have a binder, put it together, have all the major pertinence, your state, your life insurance, all your state planning documents, your health information. Obviously, you want to keep that in a secure location in your home. And uh, and fireproof safe is always good. Um, and then that way, if there is a, a crisis, whether it's my husband just got in a car accident and he's at the hospital or uh, the train derailed and I've got chemical fumes coming my way, you've got that in the easy grab-and-go binder. And that's really the first thing that I do, and I use that as a springboard to try to help people baby step into the process and just go step by step by step. And one of the first steps that we attack um, are the advanced directives, which are your health care power of attorney and your living will. And uh, those documents are state-specific, so uh, they're they're usually forms that are put out by the state of, of in which you live, and you can usually get them at the the probate court's website. And it you download them and fill them out, and usually two witnesses or a notary, and you've got that stuff taken care of. But it's a really inexpensive way to start the process, and um, and get people thinking about end-of-life choices and and what they want done. And then we move into the financial aspect of it. And then some of the more uh, remote things, like for people that might be business owners or people that have uh, property in multiple states, that type of thing, um, we might have some different tools and techniques that we can use to help minimize their risk or um, to minimize the, the possibility of probate on those. Okay. Well, when we, when we look at that, there's a lot going on that you just said there, so I want to back up and, and examine a few things. Sure. Uh, one of the things that you said you start people out with is a grab-and-go portfolio. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned on that note things like life insurance, which is be important. I'd say that in that portfolio you'd probably want to focus more on the – people who you might actually be on the recipient end of than your own life insurance, though I think maybe there has to be some copy of policy there because when you're dead, um, you're you're not really in need of your life insurance policy. Somebody else is. Mm -hmm. You don't buy life insurance for yourself. You buy it for others. But what type of things do we want to have in that grab-and-go portfolio beyond just, like, life insurance? Um, well, not to make this a sales pitch, but – we have a commercial version that we do sell, and I'm going to point it out now because on my website, it's got all of the areas, so people can use that as a checklist on, on their grab-and-grow binder if they want to uh, do a DIY version of it. But some of the main areas are having your medical information, 
uh, life insurance policies, uh, copies of all of your other assets, whether it's a CD, um, a retirement plan, all that information, knowing who the beneficiaries are, knowing who to call, um, uh, copies of uh, all of your estate planning things. Um, Another big one that people really don't think of is you know, simple things like copies of your driver's license, your concealed carry, your uh, passport, uh, border crossing cards. If you have minor children, get a state ID for them. Uh, in my grab-and-go binder, I also keep um, a little bit of cash. Uh, my kids play hockey, so we're always traveling up by the border, so I actually have some Canadian money. Um, because if you get on the wrong bridge, you go to Canada, and I've learned this the hard way. And so I thought, hmm, maybe I should have some Canadian money around. And um, I have a little bit of uh, uh, silver in there just in case. That way I'm not trying to scramble, trying to get those essentials in four different places. Um, inventory of a uh, picture inventory, which I actually keep on a flash drive that's in my binder of your your assets in your home in case there's a fire or flood, that type of thing. And I think you're the guy that did the insurance part that he mentions that as well. And uh, copies of all your utility bills, because when somebody passes, usually we're contacting somebody. And um, oddly enough, that's usually the one that we spend the most time on. And uh, copies of all of your bank accounts, um, just a statement. Uh, that way we are not calling around from bank to bank to bank trying to figure out where this person banked. So those are kind of the main areas. Well, and I think that there's like some concern about that type of data being available. Like what if you lost it? What if somebody got a hold of thing with all your bank account information? All there's, there's a couple ways that you can do that. One is in – you have to make sure that the people that would maybe pick up after you would know how to access it. But all of that data can be put, as you mentioned, on flash drives. And I believe in two is one and one is none. Mm -hmm. uh, but like bank statements and all like that. And you can you can encrypt those drives with with something called TrueCrypt, and it's 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 freely available online, and it's it's bulletproof. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's bulletproof enough that there was a guy, and you're a lawyer, so you you may take interest in this. There was a guy, I think he was in Colorado, that had data protected by TrueCrypt. And the police seized it, and they believed that that data was relevant to the crime they were prosecuting him for. And um, they had a warrant for the computer. And he said, here's your computer. And they said, okay, well, tell us how to get into it. And he said, no, I'm not going to tell you. I'd be testifying against myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not required to provide you with anything other than the computer, and here you go. And I think a judge actually ordered him to divulge the encryption code. And I don't know whether he did or not, because I don't know how you make somebody do that without waterboarding them or something like that. <laughs> but um, one way or another, the whole point was this was the state of Colorado that surely had access to some level of federal support and all of their computer geniuses and all. They couldn't get in. Huh. You know, they absolutely could not get into it. So. Um, it is a very secure technology, and I would rather have a person have the data on a drive encrypted and risk that maybe you could not access it than not have it at all mm -hmm. due to a fear of what happens if somebody else gets it. And you can even set that little gadget so that if somebody enters one code, they get one set of information, and if they enter the right code, they get all the information. 
That's so you can even use that with plausible deniability if somebody were to actually threaten you to allow them access. Oh, here's the code. Mm-hmm. And they'll get a bunch of pictures of your kittens and your puppies and all your stuff for your insurance company, but not your really key information. So I, I, that's one thing I would add to that. And then I have my low-tech method, which is if you're writing down bank account numbers, have a the way that you change numbers based on maybe adding one to all numbers and adding a zero to the end of it or what have you, and have everybody in the family know that, that like a universal method of decrypting those numbers, which is not as bulletproof as TrueCrypt, but the average idiot's not going to be able to figure it out. I agree with that. And uh, uh, the alarm code uh, companies, they always have like a, a panic code that allows the alarm to be turned off, but it still sends the signal out. So it's kind of like having a panic code for your your uh, flash drive is what it is. So I, I agree with you on the the flash drive. I, I actually have uh, – there, there's still things that you're going to want the originals of, obviously. Sure. Um, you know, those insurance policies, you've got to have that original policy at some point. Same thing with your original will because the court system hasn't caught up with technology yet. Um, but there's going to be certain things you're just going to have to have the original on. But then – Scan the whole daggone folder and keep it on on two or three different flash drives in two or three different locations, you know. But like you said, make sure you've got it secure. Yeah, because identity theft's a problem. It really is. And and if I get enough of your data, not only can I steal your identity, I can just steal your assets. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's stiff penalties for that. But finding the guy that's in Nigeria that actually bought the data – is proven to be difficult in the past. Well, and it's a full-time job just trying yeah. to get it all resolved. So just add that headache into it. So so another place that I think people leave themselves open from a legal standpoint a lot is in business. Mm-hmm. Um, people are in business and they'll have the insurances that are required or maybe the insurances that their brother-in-law who acts as their lawyer who doesn't really do that type of law, but hey, he's their brother-in-law, and so you give him a little bit of business, and he gives you a deal, says he should have, but they don't really have a good solid plan for business. Uh, things like key management, if you have a key employee, things like what to do if that business gets sued, uh, beyond just having insurance, how to put that business into a you know a transition if the person that owns it dies, because it's not just about money. Then it's like well. My wife doesn't know how freaking my business works. She knows the basics, but she can't keep my business functioning. So we have to have a transitional plan. What happens if I'm not here anymore? And I think that's left out by a lot of people. Absolutely. I would say um, 50% of my clients are small business owners that just don't even think about these things. And um, that's one of the first questions I ask. Do you own a business? Yes. What's going to happen to your business when you die? Well, I never thought about that. Well, you kind of got to figure that one out. Uh, is your business partner going to buy your wife out? Is your wife an integral part? Is she capable of continuing to, to manage it? Uh, what's going to happen with that? And a lot of times what we look for is if we're looking at that buyout strategy is using insurance policies to cross-insure the main business owner. So if you have a partnership and you have A has a policy on B and B has a policy on A. And then that way there's some readily available funds when A dies and B needs to buy out A's interest, which has just passed to the spouse. Now they have an insurance policy with which to do that. Absent something like that, a lot of times it'll just bankrupt the company. 
So we look at insurance strategies for that, but then we also need to write um, operating agreements for those businesses that actually deal with that. What's going to happen? So we're not trying to figure that out on the back end. And there's a lot of mistakes made. And, you know, I, I've been fortunate that I've caught some of my own. Um, for instance, we had an options contract drawn up for a couple employees one time. Mm-hmm. And these option contracts are relatively fast options. This was a startup, and we wanted to, to bring them into an ownership stake really quick. So it's a 12-month from the time that they were issued to the options were executed, and they actually obtained voting shares in the company. One of them, I hate to put it this way, but had a psycho hose beast of a living girlfriend <laughs> who they were getting married soon as well and would have inherited anything and everything that he had had he, he died. Well, the way the options contract was drawn up, it made it basically his personal property. And had he died after the uh, contract was executed, essentially this psychopath would have become an owner in my company. And there was no clauses in effect to prevent that as being handed down as inheritance. Mm-hmm. And and that was like, we, this doesn't work that way. You know, this is this is not the purpose of something like this, that, that there has to be some level of maybe there's an, what it ended up being was that we would assess a, I can't remember, Blackmore something rate and, and basically agree to buy the shares back. But the way that it was originally drawn up, this person could have shown up and said, I am now a 10% owner in Franklin Spirico Media. Yeah. And we would have been screwed. There would have been nothing we could have said to the contrary. Well, and I think that uh, a lot of people, they try to save a buck. They end up costing themselves a lot in the long run. And you know, legal services aren't cheap. Uh, we all know that. Medical services aren't cheap. Sometimes, you know, you don't try to set your own fractured arm. And one of those things that, you know, you don't try to draft up your own operating agreement either. So uh, you're lucky that you got it resolved beforehand, because if you had come to me on the back end, I would have said, yep, well, welcome your new business partner, because here she is. Yeah. You know, <laughs> fortunately, he, he's, he's still alive and he's still working with my old partner in a new venture. But, yeah, I mean, that that was and that was actually drawn up by a lawyer. Uh, a lawyer that we no longer used after after that and a few other places that we caught some contract issues. Because I'm like, here's my feeling about a lawyer. When people say, what are you looking for in a lawyer? If I have to explain something to you beyond my needs, right, like how the law works, you're not the lawyer for me. You should know more than me. I didn't pass the bar. I didn't go to law school. I don't have a law degree. I'm coming to you as an expert, and you should have a better understanding of the legal space I'm in than I do, or you're not qualified to be my attorney. Well, and the other thing is that when you're looking for a lawyer, you want to look for a lawyer that has a global view of your life, that isn't just looking at, let me start this business up. It's let me start this business up and, oh, yeah, let's look at the estate planning portion of it. What's going to happen when these partners die? Is it going to effectuate what the intention of the original partners are? And I think that a lot of attorneys just that they're pigeonholed into one area of law and they don't get that global approach. And it's really a, a deficiency and something that a lot of attorneys need to develop. So when your listeners are looking for an attorney to do these things, they need to interview and they need to look for somebody that has a, a, a specific knowledge of what it is that they're looking for, but 
also with a wide base in their background from which to draw from other areas of law. What are the ways that uh, an attorney can help a business with a business disaster plan? Uh, and I, I'm sure there will, you know, you'll touch on some things again about you know, a partner dying or a key employee passing away. Because I've had business startups where like, we had a guy. He wasn't an owner, but he was an employee. And the business in a startup rested on what was in his head. You call that a key man. And, and, and losing a partner or a key man is a huge thing. But there's other disasters we prepare for in business that can create legal exposures as well. So how do, how do you help a business formulate that type of a plan? Well, I mean, from my standpoint, when a small business comes to me, um, we offer um, counseling and integration service as well. And we say, okay, well, what are your plans for technology? What are your plans for fleet? If they, they have a lot of autos and cars, what are your plans for employees in 1099s? And we help them try to figure out is this person really an employee or are they 1099? So I, I think that there's a lot of different areas. You need to find an attorney that isn't just going to draft up the document, but is going to monitor that business setup from the get-go. And uh, I am dangerous enough in areas to say, hey, you need to look at this and refer you over to uh, an accountant to do those things or um, a somebody that's computer tech savvy to do these things. And then there's my area. So, but I still look at that global approach. And I think that probably the biggest area that I see exposure with is under insurance, just a business that is not insured or underinsured. And then also businesses that are miscategorized and they're not getting all of the tax benefits that they could be do, getting. And that's really an accountant call. But when you've got, you know, my brother-in-law's niece's nephew who's going through accounting school that's running your books, you're not going to get those. So I always say, just just do yourself a favor. Hire a qualified accountant and a payroll service. You will save yourself so much money in the end. Uh, it's just not even worth the fretting over the little bit of upfront cost that you're going to be having. And then having a commercial liability policy, and a lot of people don't really think of that. And having one that has enough insurance, and you also got to think about that auto portion of it if you have, um, you know, like a delivery service or something like that as well. Um, yeah, I think that if you find the right payroll company, a lot of them have HR services and things like that that can also save you a lot of headaches from a Bureau of Workers' Compensation standpoint and from an HR standpoint. So utilize those resources instead of trying to in-house all of that and outsource. It, it, it can also be a tax write-off for you, too, when you outsource it versus having it as overhead on your own independent company. Yeah, and it can it can hurt you bad when um this this guy I talked about with Neil that I set up several businesses and 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 worked in several of his other businesses for him. Uh, I took a C level position in one of his companies that did contract recruiting, and one of the first things we looked at as a problem that we had going on, which was we owed the state of California about one hundred eighty thousand dollars. And I don't even remember the particulars because this would have been back in two thousand six, and it happened before I was there. But the upshot was this was a contract 
uh, placement agency that ran contract employees. So they were our employees, but contracted to the client. Okay, so we have them contracted in the state of Texas, is where we had our business headquartered did business, and we send a, we sent a couple of them to the state of California to do contract work for Ericsson Transmission Services. They're not California residents. We don't know the state of California anything as far as the business was concerned at the time. California took a different approach to that and ended up sending us a bill for 180 grand, mm-hmm. and there was really no way out of paying it. And the truth is, had we known about the expense, it would not have been a tremendous burden because we would have deferred it onto the client and said, this is the cost of getting these guys to work for you for this period of time. This is part of the cost. And part of it was also fees and fines for not paying it. Mm-hmm. So we would have we would have never ended up with that portion of it. And we would have either taken the contract or not taken the contract. But because we had no policy in place and no legal guidance on doing business in California. The recruiter got the contract, did the business, signed it up, deployed the people. They went out, they did the work. And six months later, you're getting a bill from the state of California. And I don't know if you've ever dealt with a state that wants money from you before, but they're not real hip on like, we can't pay you now. I'll gladly pay you for the hamburger on Tuesday. If you'll give it to me, it doesn't, it doesn't really work that way. And California really wants their money because well, they're broke all the time. Yeah, they're California. So that's a perfect example. If, if we had a better legal guidance, we would have never got into that trouble. Yeah. yeah. It, you have to think of legal services as an investment. And, and a lot of people, they just see that, oh, I have to shell this out. But it's, it's not. It's an investment, and it's a savings in the long run. So same thing with uh, when you do your estate planning. Um, uh, one area that kind of goes along uh, with your story about the uh, psycho girlfriend um, business partner a lot of areas that people get caught up in on estate planning is when you have blended families and so many families are divorced and remarried. And a lot of times I see attorneys that will just draft up a will that says, okay, this is a second marriage. Everything that's wife goes to husbands and husbands goes to wife, but they have all of these resources from a prior marriage or an inheritance or something like that. So husband dies, he leaves everything to wife, and wife goes out and gets a new lawyer and disinherits all of husband's kids, and their kids see nothing. Mm. And so it's kind of one of those things. Or, uh, you know, the, the, the intentions were good between the parties when they started, but then wife goes out and gets a gold digger husband, and he convinces her to put his kids in the will and take the original dad out. You know, so those types of things happen all the time. I see that so much and just getting people to think about those blended families and also inheritance, too. Um, well, and that can be headed off with, you know, a, 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 a will that basically reads that if I pass away and have two sons and they're not yet of age of maturity, that X amount of my assets go into uh, my wife's possession because she obviously has to take care of them, and I love her, and I want her to have things behind. But if I have certain uh, assets that I want to earmark for my two sons, I can defer that with a will into a trust that goes to them and then is deferred to them at a certain age. Right. And a lot of- So we can head that right off if we think that way. Right. And I think the reason, a part of the reason people don't is the same reason they don't do prenuptial agreements. Oh, don't you trust me? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't trust the world. Statistically, I don't trust you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Statistically, I don't trust you. 
Now that's a lawyer's answer. <laughs> Statistically, my I don't husband, question. he's just given up on arguing with me. I'm like, you knew this going into our marriage. Why do you even try? Why don't you just give in now because I'm going to get my way or I'm going to make you think you got your way. And then when you go out of town, you're going to find the shed up in the in the in the yard that you never wanted in the first place. So, you know, that's what he does. I, I say, hey, I want to build a shed. No, I don't want to build a shed. And he goes away on a trip, and he comes back, and there's a shed. There's a shed. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's the that's the the marriage life of being with a lawyer. So. Well, and you know, my my response to something like that, if if that would have been me with two sons, is I, I want to make sure that they know that I thought about them and I've set this up for them, and and honestly, we've worked together and figured out and planned how much you need to get them off the ground and to launch. And then we're going to have like this. I don't believe in giving an 18 year old kid, you know, a hundred grand. I just don't. I think it's a bad idea. So we're going to have this like between launch and inheritance phase where they're kind of on their own and maybe they can get some of it just for certain purposes like finding a business or going to school. And then when they reach maybe let's say 24 or 25, they can get the lot. Um, and, and I want to set that up and we'll set that up now for if I die or you die or we both die so that we know that's in place. And, there are that's traditionally the way a lot of trusts for children are directed up where there's a provision that they can access it for maintenance support education and uh, it's usually pretty ambiguously written so there can be a lot of interpretation by the trustee on on what would qualify and if they need a car to get to and from work great you can have a car so he says great i can go and buy my ferrari no how about a how about a Fiat, you know, that type yeah. of thing. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, with a hundred thousand miles on it. So, uh, and, and, but you've got to put the trustees in place that you trust as well. And sometimes people don't really have a good option, but they don't realize that a lot of banks have trustee departments. And uh, I have to tell you, I would trust somebody completely emotionally detached from the situation more than I would trust a, 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 a grieving mother, uh, you know, my, my late my wife to, to, to me as the late husband who just wants the, this kid to feel better because he's had to deal without having a, a, a father. Well, and sometimes we put both on because the mom knows the family best and what your wishes would be. But then you have this logical counterbalance and you don't have the kid playing on the mom's emotions when you have yeah. this this corporate entity over here. It's like two keys to launch the nuclear weapon, right? So exactly. when mom goes and says, well, I'm feeling, and then there's another, there's another party to say, Hey, do you really want to do this and have a discussion that's apart from the other individual and say, maybe this is not, or maybe this is a better solution to the problem than dumping this much right now, because you know that John wanted this really to be there for them a little later in life when they were a little more mature, so they could do something with it, like buy a freaking house. Right. And another sad provision that I am consistently putting in is provisions regarding drugs, because we have so many of our kids are going wayward with drugs that they have to provide clean screens if they they are suspected of using drugs before they get any of the money. Mm. And it's sad that we have to do that, but we are lucky that we have the ability to do that. And a a trust is going to give you a lot more flexibility, and it's also going to be the vehicle to give you tax savings uh, provisions as well, which for most of us, it's not going to matter. But for a lot of us, um, 
uh, that don't have large estates, that that's us. But for people that have large estates, uh, it, it, it can really help them. And where you need to start looking at a trust being a vehicle for tax purposes really depends on the state that you're in. Um, in Ohio and Florida, there is no state estate tax. So we only are looking at federal estate tax, which is really high and I'll probably never meet it. Um, but there's other states out there that do have state estate tax. And in Ohio, uh, which is where I'm licensed, um, it was only 300000 So a lot of people were getting taxed on it. The problem is, is that drives people to retire outside the state of Ohio. So a lot of a lot of states are actually starting to. Get oh, gee, you mean people leave a state when they're when they act stupid? I know. And take too much of their property. Imagine that. <laughs> you know, I think that they're probably as responsible as a 18 year old with a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd say less responsible. Yeah. Because at least the 18 year old will eventually run out of money and not be able to take more <laughs> from somebody else. But um, th- you actually kind of made me think of another thing there when you're talking about estate planning and all. I think the big people with the biggest hole in their estate planning are the people that don't have much of an estate in their mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a house that they owe a lot of money on. Uh, they have a car that they owe money on. They have a bank account with twenty or thirty grand in it. They have a, maybe a little bit of an IRA going, but they don't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And they think I don't need all this planning because I don't have that much money. And then you talk to them, and it turns out where well, they're carrying term to eighty with a million dollar policy, mm-hmm. and they don't even think about the fact that. Effectively, that that inheritance is tied to that insurance beneficiary, uh, which has some amazing tax advantages, by the way, um, to to lock some money up in real estate for higher net worth individuals. But even the low net worth individual carrying cheap term, all of a sudden they die because they got hit by a Mack truck or something, and there's a million dollars on the table. And yeah, because it's it's insurance, it's not subject to some of the government grabbery, but it is subject to things like you know, 16-year-old kids buying Maseratis. Right. And that's where we start looking at um, use of contracts over the will. Usually the contract is going to win out over the will. So if you have a contract that says, I want my life insurance policy benefit proceeds to go to Minnie Mouse, and the will says everything I own to Daffy Duck, it's going to Minnie Mouse. <laughs> So, yeah. and I, I expect that you're going to pay the royalties to Disney for my statement there, right? Oh, sure. Okay. If so, I'm if I'm that big time, well, let let Disney sue me for royalties. <laughs> Go ahead. I'll, I'll be on O'Reilly and Fox News and everything, man. It'll be worth it. <laughs> so, I always say, okay, now let's look at making sure that you have a primary beneficiary and a contingent beneficiary. Because when you take out those policies, you always put your spouse down. Nobody ever thinks about, okay, well, what happens when my spouse and I, who drive in the car all the time together, are hit by a Mack truck and die at the same time? Or you, your husband dies and you just never put anybody on again. And you can use those trust provisions. You can put the trust down as your contingent beneficiary, usually. It, some policies won't let you, but you can put the trust down. And so then that's going to flow into the trust, but it's going to stay outside of, of probate that way. So that's always a, a good tool. The other thing is there are a lot of the states, Ohio being one of them, that have developed transfer on death affidavits or transfer on death deeds. And it's like naming a beneficiary on your property. And so uh, you just say, I, Jack Spierko, uh, upon my death, 
my property goes to Lisa Haywood. Thank you very much, Jack. And the property <laughs> will transfer. Now, you still have to go and change the title, but you don't have to go and get permission from the probate court to change that title. And a lot of people will think, oh, my husband and I own this property together, so I automatically get it. Wrong. If something happens to Jack and your wife's Dorothy, right? Correct. Okay. So. And she just said out of the room that I'm not leaving my stuff to you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no problem. I, I accept that. Uh, so if Jack and Dorothy own a property in survivorship, and it's really important that you look for the proper survivorship language because a lot of times the title companies do it wrong and don't have that on there. But assuming they did it right and Jack and Dorothy owned the property in survivorship, that doesn't mean that Dorothy automatically gets it. It means that she has the right to automatically change title without the probate court's involvement. So usually there's still some paperwork involved. So where I run into problems is the kids come to me and they say, yeah, mom and dad owned this property. My dad died. My mom just died. And I, I need, I want to sell the property. Okay. Well, great. Mom didn't change the title over when dad died. So now we've got to open a probate to get permission from the court because mom's not here to physically sign this document changing the title. So don't think that just because you own something jointly doesn't mean that there aren't steps that you have to do in order to get that over into your name only. Yeah, that makes sense because I think a lot of people do. They just think that, well, that's all that's all taken care of. And does it if if someone doesn't do that, does it put them in certain areas where they become vulnerable from a legal standpoint then? Well, yeah. And to whom? Uh, whom do they become vulnerable to? I will give you um, a personal example. Um, we had a family farm. Um, my great, 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 keep going, had like 14 children. And so you can imagine how big this family tree is. And nobody changed title all the way down through. And so they're working on it right now. They're wanting to open something like 156 probate cases in order to change the title. Well, by the time you do all of that, you suck up what little value the land had. So it looks like either they're going to have to work with us or it's going to sheet to the state. Well, what do you think they want to do? They want the property. So that property is probably going to be gone. That was in the family for a long time. So it, it, I would imagine that that's going to run state by state by state as well. So it's usually where you start getting um, down the family tree and property is just been sitting there and everybody just thought, oh, my great, great grandparents had this farm. And, um, you know, since my mom and dad had four brothers and they've all died and now I'm a one thirty second owner of it, you might not be. Yeah, because let's say that, you know, great grandpa, it, it was it went from great grandpa to grandpa and grandpa to dad and now to you. If no one ever took title, dad can't leave it to you because he doesn't have title. Well, he can leave it. He leaves the interest, but you have, in order to do anything with that property, you have to change title, change title, change title, change title, all the way down the line. So I can just sit there, like if he left it to me and I want to live in it, it's no problem. But when I go to sell it is what you're saying, yeah. or 
divide ownership in it. Well, how do you have – so the question from the state becomes now, how do you have the legal claim to do this? Well, my dad gave it to me. Well, did he own it? Well, yeah. Well, how does he have claim to it? Where's So they want to see proof of ownership. They have the interest. It's just wrongly titled. Huh. Now, the way around all of that is if you have a family farm, you look at a family trust. And then that also prevents the scenario of, um, let's say, um, dad remarries and then gives everything to the stepmother. Okay, now we've got the step-parents and step-mothers having interest in this farm that didn't even come from their lineage. And mm-hmm. so the way you get around that is, is through a family trust. And then it passes it down through that same lineage all the way down. You don't have to worry about divorced people and all of uh, the crazy girlfriends and stuff. So. <laughs> so when we look at insurance, then how do we fit the insurance into business succession planning? We're tap dancing on it with a farm, but let, let's talk about a, a a full-on corporate business. I've got a company. Uh, it's a private company, but I do have shareholders and stakeholders in the company. <laughs> and it, I'm the CEO and the majority shareholder, and I kick over. Uh, how do how do we use insurance in that type of scenario? Especially, you know, like it's not I kick over at like seventy eight when I was semi retired anyway and already had named my replacement and done it. I'm like forty six, hard charging in the prime of my life. I'm up on stage, like just happened with the guy from the the guy that was the CEO of Republic Metals at a conference and, and giving a conference a, a speech at a conference and grabs his heart, falls over and dies. Right. So. Hopefully there's a business succession plan in place there, and how does insurance play into that? Well, I think it's really important that when you're going into a business and you're looking at succession planning for it, the the business owners, we'll just say it's a partnership at this point in time, but the two business owners take a look at it and say, is my interest going to survive and go on and your wife is going to take this over or maybe your son and they're going to continue as a co-owner with me? Or am I looking at buying your family out at fair market value at the time? And so assuming that they're looking at a buyout, that's where you use that cross insurance. And so A has insurance on B, B has insurance on A. So then when A kicks the bucket, B has a life insurance policy that gives him the funds available to buy the spouse. Now, now, correct me if I'm wrong. Shouldn't the company actually own that policy? But the because okay, so if I inherit money from you, let's say we're partners, and I get money, and I'm going to personally purchase your shares of your 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 husband's shares in the company because you've died now. Isn't it more the case that we'd actually want the company to do that? Correct. And and you use that. You use business funds to pay for both policies. Yeah. And, um, and it's written off as a business, business expense. It's just it's on your life, on the other person's life. And then um, as far as depending on how you have your corporate set up is how you're going to name those beneficiaries. It, it, it's probably, it may be the person. It may be the business name or it could be a, a, a an alternate 
as well. So the person, or if that person's not alive, then then an alternate uh, beneficiary is named. So that's really that cross insurance is is kind of key for that situation. Um, otherwise, you're looking at maybe using a uh, insurance policy that isn't going to pay out as far as the full value of the share, but maybe a portion of it. So you've got some money to outsource some things and um, get you through during that transition time while you're trying to bring somebody up on board and up and running. In other words, I need to insure my, my stakeholders for more than the amount of money to buy out their interest from their heirs because now I need to replace the function they were performing. Right. Right, unless you're planning on doing it all. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not, uh, that's not why you go into business, right? You don't go into business to do all the work, especially when you start having partners and employees. Let's just be frankly honest. It's a pain in the ass. Right. And you, if, you, if you're in that mode, you're trying to build a large business, you're depending on certain people to perform certain functions. And when they're gone, then now here's an interesting question then. From a legal standpoint, how do I prepare to deal with a situation where that person doesn't die? They're just not available to perform their functions anymore. What I mean by that is yeah. you and I are partners in business. You are a key. You're not just a partner owner. You're also an employee. So you're drawing a salary, and I really rely on you. You're our legal officer, okay? You're our CLO, right? And, and you get in a car wreck, and you are brain damaged. Mm-hmm. And now you're in the hospital bed. And I really care and I really feel bad about that. But on the other hand, I've got to keep this business functioning, especially if I'm going to maybe still uh, pay you your dividend component because you're not now a salaried employee because you're incapacitated. Maybe you have some kind of disability insurance or something like that. But how do I protect myself and give myself a way to be able to functionally replace you? BOE, business overhead insurance. Okay. And um, – and the other thing is having short-term and long-term disability and having it for full disability or partial disability. Okay. And, but that's on the individual. But for the company, you look at having business overhead insurance, which is basically going to cover the business expenses of how much it's going to cost went to have somebody else come in and cover that position. And I actually had to tap into that. I had a skiing accident and, uh, you know, my mind was working fine. Just none of my limbs were working fine. And uh, so we tapped into the business overhead um, expenditure insurance portion of my disability insurance policy. They went hand in hand in order to hire and um, cover the expense of hiring a secretary to come in and, dictate everything for me and type for me and mail my letters out for me and things like that. So because it was, it was just an added burden to the, to the firm. So, and it was there and that's what it's there for. My always, my thought too is use it. If you've got the insurance, use it when you need it. Otherwise, what are you paying for it for? So. Correct. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, I mean, exactly. What are you paying for if, if you're unwilling to use it? We had an insurance agent on a, a week ago, and we talked about how there are times when you don't file a claim because it just doesn't make sense because you're, it's a thousand dollar deductible and your claim's eleven hundred dollars. But but that's the case when you have a hundred thousand dollar claim. You 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 
you use it. I always get people that say, oh, I was in an auto accident and don't, don't hold this against me, but that's where my history comes from. I was an ambulance chaser, so. Uh, I knew there was something about you. Yeah, yeah. I, you probably just lost uh, 50,000 listeners after I said that. But that's really <laughs> what gave me a great understanding of how something that is a, a really high probable occurrence will wipe people out. And I think that that's really kind of what led me to to the area that I'm practicing in now and trying to help people plan for those things in advance. But people will come to me all the time. They were hit by somebody that didn't have insurance. And but no, I don't want to make a claim on my policy. Well then what are you care why are you paying the premium for uninsured motorist coverage? Correct. You're not going to use it when you get hit by an uninsured motorist. Yeah. Makes no sense. Yeah. So and everybody should have uninsured motorist coverage, even if you have an old jalopy beat up car you still need to have it because it it really protects for your bodily injury. So, so we've, we've been talking about this largely from how it affects people from a standpoint of business ownership and uh, estate planning when they die and, and transferring their assets. But I think people in general really need a little bit better of an education on legality and legal issues and legal protections in their daily lives. So what are some types of legal education you think a layman might invest in? Well, I think that I know that you've probably got a majority of your audience that, that has that concealed carry out there. And I think that that is some exposure area. Um, people should check their homeowner's policy to see um, what their coverage is as far as discharge of their weapons at their home. Also, um, weapons in the car and uh, that check the auto policy with that. And I always recommend that people go ahead and uh, give a lawyer that is experienced in um, in criminal law that that does uh, does do self-defense types of claims 50 bucks and retain their services and have their phone number on hand in your wallet in case God forbid you ever do have to discharge your firearm. I think that's one area. Um, that I see a lot of exposure. And then the other area I see a lot of exposure on is nobody has identity theft protection. And some of your homeowner's policies will have that, but it's something to look at and make sure that you've got enough. So uh, I also hear a lot about whether or not you should go out and get insurance for your concealed carry. And I'm kind of on the fence on that. I think if you don't have a lot of assets and you don't have um, a lot of of assets in your house, a legal defense, if you have to discharge your firearms, probably going to run you 100, 150. So if you've got equity in your home, I don't think it's really worthwhile paying the premium for that type of insurance. But if you don't, then it might be something you'd want to look into. And I think that there's good companies and bad companies. My best advice would be go to the NRA and see who they're using and recommending. So, And then I always, always, always see a lot of exposure with the auto insurance. People think, oh, I've got an old car. I only need minimum state limits liability only. And they leave themselves with a lot of exposure there as well. Okay. Um, 
the other thing I think is that a lot of people, you know, you watch the TV documentaries, or not documentaries, like the dramas and stuff, and the guy gets arrested, he's like, call my lawyer. <laughs> and, of course, the police don't call your lawyer for you. They, they, they will give you a phone and let you call your own lawyer eventually. Um, it, it, but different attorneys have different values for different things in different situations. So um, I'm sure you wouldn't tell our audience that you are their one-stop shop for every single legal need that they could ever possibly have. Um, it, you may not be the guy to go to if somebody's facing a, a murder trial. Right. Right. I mean, you might be like, you know, that's I do estate planning. I would get somebody with experience defending people in capital murder cases, not me. Um, so what type of attorneys should a person you know, kind of know in advance and have some relationship with and have a phone number to get a hold of in certain situations? Well, I would say that it's probably a good idea um, to have a criminal defense attorney, because if you think about it, you have civil attorneys and you have criminal attorneys. Anything civil that's going to go wrong probably isn't going to be a major emergency where you're going to need to have somebody right away. And But criminal, on the other hand, you know, you don't want to be the Trayvon Martin case, you know. So um, I would have something like that on hand. Um, and if you have a family lawyer, that's probably okay because if I've, and I've had clients call me in an emergency situation. Hey, this is what happened. I know you don't do this type of law, but I usually know enough from my law school background um, to give them some immediate guidance and get them over to somebody or put a call into a colleague that I've got their cell phone number and say, Hey, I got a problem. I've got a client. Um, he just got picked up for this and they'll, they'll put a call in and, and do what they need to do. So I would say any lawyer phone number to just keep with you or have memorized on hand is better than nothing. But if I were to pick any one type of lawyer, I'd say criminal, a criminal defense attorney. You know what makes me agree with that a lot is if you end up in a situation where you're charged with a crime, and I'm going to assume that you're innocent because that's what our legal system is actually supposed to do is assume that you're innocent and that you would want to be able to defend yourself and, you know, reasonably from this accusation and do the best job you can in preparing to be put on trial if that's just, if it goes that far. That you would be far better off in preparation for that, sleeping in your own bed, in your own home, being able to confer with your attorney, being able to have other people there to support you and being able to be in, in a very right, straight frame of mind than defending yourself from a jail cell waiting for the potential to move from jail to prison. And, and one of the most valuable things that you can have an attorney see to for you is to make sure that you're given the reasonable bail that you're promised and not, you're not up on a charge that's not you know a capital murder charge. And yet, for some reason, a judge hands down a million-dollar bond and you need $100,000 post-bond. Right. And, 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 and it's so important that a person that's in that unfortunate situation, wrongly accused, defending themselves, be able to do so from – from their home versus from a jail cell, if they're going to be successful. And let's face it, if you end up in front of a jury, certain things about your appearance do affect the way they judge you. And a person that's in jail for 90, 100 days or more before they go to trial 
starts to kind of look and give off the vibe of being a person that's incarcerated. They start to feel guilty to a jury is what, you know, one of the gentlemen from the Fully Informed Juror Association explained to me, that people that have to defend themselves from prison often end up looking like prisoners and therefore seem more guilty to a jury, as weird as that sounds. And they can't let their guard down at all. Because the second they let their guard down and show who they really are, that's the second the second that they're getting attacked or jumped in the prison. So sure, and and that just becomes second nature to them. It's like uh, muscle memory almost, and and it's it's a defense mechanism. And then you look guilty, right? And then you look guilty, right? It's the the kid that just took the cookie. You know he did. Well, he has a look, right? So this guy has a look that he looks guilty, but what he really is thinking is, I don't want to get shanked. Right, and and. The last thing you want, I mean, presumably we we're, we're all have honorable intentions, things like that, but things go wrong. You know, people do have to defend themselves. And um, there seems to be a presumption um, that, okay, fine, self-defense, but there's almost a presumption that it wasn't self-defense. It's like the wrong presumption. And because if they err the other way, now we've got a real political problem. So the last thing you want, it, it, from a prepping standpoint, is to be in jail, not have access to any type of phone directories, and be trying to figure out who might be a good attorney. Well, why don't you figure that out before you even have a, a, an issue? The same as, um, you know, you go to the gun range to learn how to fire your gun. You might do some tactical training. I would love to see some of the tactical training institutes um, start teaching what to do if they do have a self-defense situation, what to say. You know, let's let's add a legal component to your self-defense training and have people practice setting their gun down and what to say and talk to, how to talk to the officer. Yeah, um, I did a show with Masada Yub that every single person that, that owns a gun I don't care if you carry or you just mm-hmm. keep it in the home for defense. You should listen to it yeah. because that he, that's what he's an expert on. And it's a place where, okay, if you have a shooting where you actually shot somebody, you have to break from the generally recommended advice in dealing with the police in a situation where they're questioning you about a crime. Right. The best advice I could give anybody if, like, the police are investigating a burglary and they say they have questions for you and you don't have anything that you think is immediately relevant, like there's the guy running down the street right now to shut your hole and say nothing, right? <laughs> right. There is no benefit to talking to the police in that scenario. On the other hand, when you actually have had a person try to rob you and you shoot them and you dial 911 and the police come and you disarmed yourself down and said, it's me, I'm the guy, I called in, here he is. This guy came at me with a knife. There's the knife in his hand. He was trying to kill me, whatever it is. And, and they say, okay, we'd like to talk to you about the situation. And you just say, I'm not saying anything, but I see my attorney. All starts of bells and whistles start going off for the investigating officer because you've made the phone call. You've told them to come there, and you've already acknowledged that you use lethal, lethal force. So Mossad goes through, and I won't repeat it, but basically five points that you go through with that with that uh, officer, that investigating officer, and the last one is, in, and now that I've answered those, I will be happy to answer any additional cu- questions you have after I confer with counsel. Mm-hmm. So you basically give them the reason, you know, the, the, what happened, 
why you felt threat, and you state that you want to press one of the things he said, the most important thing you can do is since the, you're saying the person assaulted you, you want to file charges mm-hmm. against the assailant who's he, what he said is, you know, the, 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 the criminal is doing a pretty good job of impersonating a victim when the, when the police show up by laying on his face in blood. So even though like it would seem ridiculous that you would file criminal charges, well, you don't know if he's dead or not. You're not a doctor. Right. You didn't try to kill him. You tried to defend yourself. Hopefully they'll resurrect them or whatever. But you want to file charges because the guy tried to rob you, steal from you, kill you, whatever. And that it's important to, to actually establish that as part of your response, mm-hmm. but to actually give the most pertinent information, which, like I said, I think that that is one of the few times where you would break from the advice of shut your hole, get a lawyer. I would agree. I would agree. And another Another area of that would be DUI. Yeah, no, no, my advice is don't drink and drive. Okay. Yeah. But <laughs> that being said, um, so many people do do it and um, just walk right into all of the traps that are laid out for them to convict them on these things. And I, I, I think a lot of it is, is the officer, too. And, and what their disposition is. I mean, I've been pulled over multiple times with my concealed carry, and I swear not one officer has done the exact same thing in, in regards to it. So, you know, one officer is like, eh, I don't care. Good for you. I'm glad you've got one. And other officers are like, well, you've got to pull it out and put it on the dash, and you've got to do this and that. And I'm like, okay, and if I accidentally discharge it, I think you guys are getting sued, but okay, you know, whatever you want. So... Um, I think a lot of it depends on the officer that you're you're getting, but you don't know what their disposition is. You don't know if they're pro concealed carry or or not. So, well, there's no way you can possibly know. No, no, and and I think that that's a lot of our strategy is investigating the investigating officer to know well what were their prejudices going into the investigation of this case. But well, and I would say that, like, this could be situational. The guy that would normally be really decent and deal with what happened to him yesterday? Yeah. Right? If the officer that pulls you over today that you've, you've announced to, you've declared to, I have a concealed carry permit and I am carrying, um, yesterday stopped a guy who tried to pull a gun out from underneath his seat. Right. There is no way in hell he's not in a different frame of mind today than he would have been if he pulled you over the day before. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. My brother-in-law is an officer, and um, and he's very pro-concealed carry because he feels it makes his job safer in, in a lot of ways. And he likes it when people come up to the car and they say he has concealed carry because it gives him more of a sense of, of um, safety than somebody that doesn't announce it. Because he already knows this is a law-abiding citizen. They announced it. I wouldn't tell you if I was going to pull it on you. <laughs> I'm not stupid. I mean, that's that's really – but there are officers that think that way. And I've seen ridiculous things from cops on TV. I saw they pulled one guy over on that cop show, and he had a machete in the back seat. And they're like, why do you have this? Why do you even need this? And I'm like, you know, I'd, I'd really like to sit down with that officer and ask him, how many crimes have you investigated or been part of that, that somebody actually used a machete in a crime? 
Because yeah. I don't think it's a very common weapon, Friday the 13th movies from the 80s aside. <laughs> it, it's not the general criminal weapon. Let's be uh, You don't hold up a convenience store with a freaking machete. Well, was the machete right. part of uh, attached to somebody's bug out bag? Because that might just answer the question right now. Nah, he just had it laying in the back seat. And he was a dope head and all. But he's, you know, c- come on. You know, you got the guy on a dope charge. There is There was no charge for the machete that the guy, like where he was, I guess there's places where that's probably illegal to have that because they don't believe in liberty. But wherever this was, they didn't actually have anything to charge him with when they, you know, kind of do the thing at the end where they say what he was charged with. He wasn't charged with the machete at all, but the the cop is freaking out because he even possesses it. Mm-hmm. What do you have that for? I don't know. I cut my my crank with it. I, you know, <laughs> um, so I guess we're getting a little off topic there, but I'm with you on a criminal attorney. And I, I think that, one of the best things a person could probably have is an attorney that they know, you know, outside of that criminal attorney that handles most of their things, but that they trust that when they have an issue that is a big issue, but not so immediately. Like a criminal attorney, when you need a criminal attorney, you need them now. Right. But if you need a civil defense attorney or something like that, you usually have a little more time. Having someone that you deal with for your day-to-day issues that may not be right for that, but you know is solid in vetting someone to recommend you to. Right. Absolutely. And the time to find an attorney is not when you need one. It's before you need one. And and sometimes, you know, it, it could change because people retire, that type of thing. But And I always look for, again, that attorney with more of a universal background for, for that purpose. Because, like, for example, we were talking about the concealed carry. Um I have a, a little bit of background in, in domestic, and one of the hot topics in, in domestic right now is if you have a, a part of the divorce decree is that do not harass, molest, whatever, whatever, uh, the, the ex-spouse, well, guess what? Now you just uh, negated your right to have a concealed carry license. And so a lot of areas of law really start crossing over Mm. And so that's why I think it's really good to have somebody that's very knowledgeable in your specific area, but has a broad based background. Another example is the transfer and death affidavits or the transfer and death deeds, depending on what state you're in regarding it has an estate planning need. But technically, that's real estate law. You know, Uh, Mm -hmm. your life insurance policies, technically, that's contract law. But you can use that to benefit you from an estate planning standpoint. So I just can't stress looking for that broad background type of person that isn't just going to look at your one specific pigeonholed area and take a look at your entire life. I mean, you've experienced that firsthand on, on what that can do for you. So Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we I'm a big believer in a team approach. So when I have a business, I want a primary business attorney for that business. Mm-hmm. And, and the next business I, I put in place, I may not use the same attorney because they may be better suited to a different business arena. And I want that guy to be able to, to refer me out when something's over his head and I want him to be honest with me. But I want a good CPA as well, and I want the, the attorney and the CPA to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. I, I think that when you and, – and, and I do the same thing when I build teams of outsourcers around a business as well. I want the teams talking to each other, and I think that's like the most important approach that you can take with, take with all of these things is to realize that you'll never have the one – you know, even if you have – 
you know, the, 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 the star player on the team, he still can't, you know, win every game for you without the support of the rest of the members of the team. Right. But you're only as good as your team. And the people exactly. are with you and behind you. And I, in my law firm, I always tell people, uh, I'm never going to ask you to do a job that I haven't personally done myself. And because one, I want to know how to do it. And two, I, I just think that that's the right way to roll. So I'm not going to ask you to do something that I wouldn't do. If I'm not going to do it, then I shouldn't be asking you to do it. So it very much into that, that whole team approach, which, you know, kind of goes along with the whole, you know, uh, prepper movement as well, too. So although I don't call myself a prepper, I, I don't call myself a survivalist. I call myself a thrivalist because I want to thrive in life. I don't want to just survive. So, you know, there's my word for the day. So on that note, I mean, how can you help us? I'm sure if people are in Ohio, you, you are licensed to practice there so they can get in touch with you from your website, HaywoodLaw.com, right. uh, for, for needs like that. But, I mean, everybody else that doesn't live in Ohio because, well, your taxes are too high, for one thing. <laughs> and you have unions there, too, and I, whatever. But anyway, you actually have another website that you can you can help people with certain things no matter where they're at, right? Right. It's uh, called LifeShield360, and uh, we're in the process of making it a nonprofit um, to support uh, different movements and organizations throughout the community. That's where you can look if you want to, if you don't want to reinvent the wheel and you want to look for a grab and go uh, life organizational binder, we have those um, on the website there, commercial version of it. And uh, we work on group buys of things. And so you'll see products on there that are just not your everyday thing or something that might be an everyday thing that I just got a better price point on and uh, try to pass that on to the way I see it is the more people that are prepared, the less uh, less likely you're going to be on welfare and I'm going to be paying for it. So, um, <laughs> yeah. so I'm all for trying to help people help themselves. And so there's some resources on there as well. And um, that's Life Shield 360. And some, we have an event calendar. So if I see something that's coming up in, in the area, I'll, I'll throw that up if it's free, that type of thing. So I think there's a lot of free self-defense courses and things like that on there, So which I'm very big into. So. Well, it's very cool. I don't think I've ever seen an attorney with a website with uh, long-term storable food on it before, so that's very <laughs> encouraging to see. And I'll make sure I have links to both your, your main website, which, again, is uh, HaywoodLaw.com and to LifeShield360 uh, in the show notes today. And, Lisa, thank you for being with us here today, especially since you had to uh, to come back a second time around to make it happen. Well, at least we didn't have the technical difficulties and this time. And I, I do want to say one more thing that I, I uh, didn't get to mention earlier, but for people that uh, are preppers, I think that a lot of, of your audience probably has real estate in multiple states. And a lot of times that can open up a logistical probate nightmare. And a lot of things that you can do is is putting the property in a trust that is not in your resident state or opening a limited liability company. And If you have a lot to say about this, don't let the fact that I was about to wrap the show up make you trunctuate it. Okay. Uh, speak as, as in-depth on this topic as you want, because looking back at my notes, it, it, one way or another, as we got sidetracked, I did skip over that. Okay. So, so please give people the lowdown on that, and then we'll clean up. This is not 
radio, and we do not have bumper music, and we don't have cutoff times. Okay, all right. Well, um, a lot of times what happens is it's called an ancillary administration. So if I live in Ohio and I've got um, property in Tennessee, and then I pass, Ohio doesn't have jurisdiction over that property in Tennessee, so they have to go to the Tennessee probate court and open another probate in Tennessee in order to get it retitled where it needs to go. And But if you take that Tennessee property and you put it in your trust and the trust owns that property, then you you are evading that ancillary administration over in the probate court in Tennessee. Sometimes that's not the most cost-effective way to do it, um, if it's, it doesn't make sense for you to do a trust and you're only doing it for that one piece of property, that probably wouldn't make sense. But you could do a limited liability company in Ohio and then put the Tennessee property in the name of the limited liability company. And now you are just transferring the interest in that limited liability company, which that only the only thing that that has as an asset is that property and so now you've gotten around that Tennessee ancillary administration okay that that makes a lot of sense because it's 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 who has ownership at that point right because uh, technically if you if you just leave something to somebody Nobody has ownership. It's like a like a, uh, a ghost town in the middle, like a nowhere land for a while. It's in a like a nebulous stasis. Um, whereas what you're talking about setting up, and correct me if I don't have this right, since you didn't really own it, this this other entity did. You're just changing who has control of the entity, and the, you you avoid the ghost town phenomenon where the thing is kind of in this limbo state. Right. So. If you have, if we set up um, Jack Spearco Realty and we take his Tennessee property and we make the owner of that Tennessee property Jack Spearco Realty, and then in your will, you say any interest that I own in Jack Spearco Realty goes to my wife, now your wife owns that interest. Or you and your wife could own it together, and you, you're just passing on the interest. But because it's a company, it's always going to live on. It's just that the interest in that company is going to change hands. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I'm glad you caught that mistake that I made because I think that actually affects a, a lot of people. There are a lot of people in this audience that own property in other states. Right. And most of them have probably not thought about what happens if they die. And especially there's probably a lot of people that have done something like, you know, mom and dad uh, own the house together, but when dad went off to New Mexico to buy the deer lease that's actually a bug-out location, he bought it in his own name for whatever reason, not necessarily to um, to keep it from mom, but because it was owner-financed or God knows what he had the credit and it was easier that way or, you know, it didn't ding her credit as another debt or whatever reason or he was there and she wasn't. and They didn't want to do a freaking power of attorney to buy, you know, a, a $50,000 piece of land that was no more than a car payment. Right. 
Uh, so there's probably a lot of people in that world that need to at least think about how they handle that, and, and it's really good that you caught that. Right, and and the same thing with rental properties. Uh, mm-hmm. Properties that are in your own individual name can create a lot of exposure uh, from a liability standpoint. So just for each rental property you have, you have a separate limited liability company, and even if it's a rental property in a different state or if it's in in the same state in which you reside, you're limiting the liability on that. And you don't want to have, you want to have a separate limited liability company for each property that you have, because if something happens on property one, then your liability is limited to property one, the value of property one. But if you have four different properties under one LLC and something happens on property one and you get hit for a million dollars and you only have a hundred thousand dollar policy on it, they're going to go after the hundred thousand policy. They're going to go after property one, property two, property three, and property four. Sure. So you just try to keep as little as possible as an asset within each of those individual rental property companies. And actually, that is actually uh, just described on my website on the practice page. So yeah, I, I, it makes me think of I read one of Trump's books called Asset Protection 101, and the upshot was you want to look pen, penniless on paper as an individual, mm-hmm. and you want when anybody looks at one part of your wealth and thinks about trying to sue you for it, you want it to look as convoluted and complex and time consuming as possible to actually get at it. Mm-hmm. You want them to be like, well, we could do it, but this is not a soft target um, because there's actually people um, who, believe it or not, make a living picking people to sue that really didn't actually do anything to them. Uh, in big companies, it's class action, but there's a lot of small companies where, you know, there's just a person out there that kind of that's their job. They just look, is there any vulnerability here that I can attack and sue for any purpose whatsoever uh, especially if I think these people will just settle out to me rather than go through court. Yeah. I had a girl one time sue me over graphic artist work she supposedly did as part of a job interview um, uh, for a DVD jacket, and basically the art was a picture that I own the property rights to. She had no case whatsoever uh, against me. She wanted 250 bucks for it, and I would have told her to cram it. She sued me at small claims court in Denton, Texas, but because she sued my LLC – not me directly, and I was a corporation, I was not able to represent myself in the lawsuit and would have had to send an attorney <laughs> because that's Denton's jurisdiction. Right. So I gave her the 250 bucks. It's those darn lawyers. They're always looking yeah. for somebody to sue. Well, 250 bucks, whatever. <laughs> right? You know, And that wasn't even a lawyer. That was an individual that I don't think she was smart enough to realize that. She just got lucky. Yeah. Like, I'm like, well, I'm going to go down there, and I had all the stuff and all the email exchanges and all, and I'll just and, – and so I had my HR person, Allison, who did lots of other things for me, like check into it, like, is, is this going to be okay for me to do? And she comes back, she goes, no, Denton says you can't do that. You'll have to get our attorney, Jeff, to go down there. And Jeff's like, you know damn well I'm going to charge you more than 250 bucks to go to Denton. Pay her the 250 Yeah, he was like, I, I would pay her. The, he's like, if you want to do this on – I sent him everything. He's like, if you want to do this on spite, he said, slam dunk. I'll go in there and make her look like an ass. Yeah. But I'm going to charge you a grand to make her look like an ass, or you can give her the 250 bucks. And when somebody asks you about her in the future for like a job reference or something, uh, just say, I, I wouldn't do that. 
and that's probably a smarter action to take. Yeah. So it's a small world in web development and project design. And funny enough, um, I was having uh, lunch with a guy about six months later who was considering hiring a new graphics designer. And guess who he asked me about? <laughs> Karma is a bitch. It is. So that worked out. It cost me two hundred fifty bucks, but. And I didn't even tell him the whole story. I just said exactly what Jeff said to protect myself. But I, I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> or you could just say, my mom told me if I don't have something nice to say, I don't say anything at all. So yeah. I'm not say anything yeah. at all. We'll to run a business. We'll figure that out. Anyway, with that, thanks for being on the air with us today, Lisa. Thanks for having me. It was, it was really enjoyable. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Lisa Haywood, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better Yeah.